Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of the Coruscant Pulse podcast. Today is October 16th, and we are 60 days away from Rogue One. I'm going to be taking over hosting duties today, and my name is David. And with me, who do I have on the line? James. Hello, James. How are you doing this fine day? Pumped. Pretty pumped. Now, what's got you that pumped? Uh, well, um, we had a the final Rogue One trailer and uh, the final Darth Vader comic. Um, yeah, good week. Yeah, really good week. Um, so on the 13th, that's when Rogue One, a Star Wars story trailer number two dropped. And oh, man, was it good. But there, you know, how do you want to do this, James? Do you want to go over it? kind of like from the beginning to the end and just go through it or do you want to talk about generalities first or after hmm Let, let's go beginning to end and then general okay sounds good to me uh so one of the first things that happens is we actually get a shot of of what looks to be like a galen urso's homestead with Jin and galen talking to like a young Jin, right yes sir and it kind of actually opens up with this beautiful panoramic shot of Krennic shuttle coming in for a landing with an alien sky, soft music. It is, it is really nice overall. And then, of course, you know, it, it cuts away because it uses that as kind of like a dream sequence flashback thing to what one of the first things that caught my eye about this trailer was. And that is, I, I don't think you know what they are james because you were never big into dungeon dragons right i was not okay well there is so <laughs> at like the 25 26 second mark in the second trailer you've got this thing sitting across from Jin in the in a cell and uh felicity jones referenced it as her many tentacled friend uh at, at another point in in a different interview but the guy looks a lot like an illithid or a mind flayer, uh, for those of you that know what that is. So it's basically like, it's this humanoid looking thing, but it's got just like a massive tentacles coming out of its mouth. And I know that there was a Star Wars species that had something similar to this. Quarian, that was on Mon Cal. And you know what? I don't think it was the Quarian. There was another one. Uh, but it, it was I, totally I the it started with a K, but I'm I'm blanking on it. Totally the corn. No, no. Uh, trust me, I, I know I know what the corn are. I want to say it was like the kith or something like that. Uh, but with these guys, you know, they're certainly not it because they have like this guy looks rather different, but really cool shot overall. Anything pop out to you in the beginning, James? One thing that I thought was interesting is Krennic is still already wearing his little white uniform. So what? And this is taking place probably a good ten, fifteen years before the events of Rogue One. That little snippet. Obviously, he's been pretty high up for a while. So I've got a question for you. Do you think this is before or after the events of Catalyst? I think it'll be after the events of Catalyst. Okay. Probably. Or or like a montage in between type thing. I can see that happening where it's kind of like, you know, hey, this is, you know, maybe maybe Catalyst has a happy ending where Galen and Jin actually get away. But then there's this shot of Krennic finding Galen once again at the end. I could see that. So, James, I've got to ask, what was the next thing that kind of popped up at you? 
because you got the Lucasfilm piece, and then you know what happens after the Lucasfilm comes up, right? Oh, I've watched it about 10 times. You see a Star Destroyer. You see a Star Destroyer in atmosphere, which I don't think we've ever seen. And um, actually, all the old EU, you never really talked about a, a Imperial Star Destroyer going into atmosphere. It was always a Victory Star Destroyer that could do it going into atmosphere. And, you know, that whole thing never made a whole lot of sense to me because I didn't, I never felt like there was a huge difference in size. Like, yeah, the M stars were bigger, but it's not like they were that much bigger. Yeah, Victory Star Stories were 900 meters and Imp Stars were like 1600. Really? They were twice the size? I always thought it was like, you know, three quarters the size of or something like that. Nope, they were almost twice the size. Dang. And the other thing I noticed when they're breaking Jin out of the jail is the nice um, battle effect of ears ringing. Oh yeah, that was pretty cool at like the 35 sig mark. But back to the Star Destroyer, though, because I, I can't get over how great the Star Destroyer looks. And I think I think for me, like, it, it's really when you look up at that Star Destroyer, it's it's one of those, like, glory shots where, like, you pan up and, like, the sky is blotted out by this ship. Like, because it's a big, big ship, but it. You know, when it's over a city, it basically dominates its sky. And, and that, and then with the TIE fighters, like, coming in overhead, it it really puts forth the idea that Jeddah is a place that is made peaceful and made passive by the appearance of the Star Destroyer here. It really gives an interesting thought when you remember that in the EU you had names for Star Destroyers like Subjugator, um, Dominator, etc., etc. Okay, so I've got a quick question for you, like based off of like kind of like the first pieces that we're seeing here. What planet do you think they're breaking Jin out of prison on? I think it's Jeddah. You think that she's been stationed at Jeddah this entire time? Well, I mean, it makes sense. Isn't that Jeddah supposed to be the home of, uh, or not home, but where Saul is, and she's supposed to be a confidant of Saul's? That's what they were saying, but I wonder if they may have worked together in another location or something like that. And, you know, there's one reason why I kind of think that way, although it really depends if they're looking inside or outside of the, of the, what's on the outside of the cell that Jin is in. Because you've got a brick building on the outside with gray bricks. And then on the ground, the ground is kind of like it, it's a plain concrete. So there's definitely a good argument that can be made to say like, okay, that kind of like plain concrete and the like, that is, you know, that is just the inside of a cell. You know, that's like leading out to it. That's just a corridor with more cells in it. Uh, maybe. Yeah, I could see that. Because the other thing is when, when they blast in, like, the Rebels seem to be wearing, like, um, a green camo, which would be really weird on Jedi, I feel like. So part of me thinks that that might be another planet that we don't have a name for yet, which I would be super pumped for. Like, uh, part of me really hopes that they make this thing, like, planet-hopping madness. You would. 
I do. I love space. I love varied environments. One of my favorite, even though it's one of the dumbest things about Star Wars, is the idea that there is a single arcology for entire planets. Like, hey, you have a desert planet and a water planet and a jungle planet. <laughs> like, completely ignoring, like, any kind of climate science and the like. That's one thing that I love about Star Wars. And... You know, if you're going to stay true to that idea and that notion, then what you basically have to do is if you want to have a lot of varied environments, you need to hit up a bunch of different planets. And that's one thing that I'm really hoping to get to do in, in this film. They might. So the next thing, though, that jumped out at me and I just I, I went back to it multiple times. That fucking Jedi laying in the sand, like Planet of the Apes style. Okay, you gotta tell me, where is that? It's at like the 42nd mark, right after Jin's uh, ear ringing performance. Oh my god! You missed that, didn't you? I didn't realize that's what it was. It's yeah. totally a Jedi. Yeah, so I, I'm guessing this is probably on the planet Jedi as well. But if you're looking at like there's a scene where they have a top down shot and you can clearly see a Jedi in robes. I mean, maybe it's a Sith, who knows, but it's probably a Jedi uh, holding a lightsaber in two hands. And there's a, like, it's really obvious if you know what you're looking for, but yeah, the 42nd mark, you know, it's hands are broken. Um, and the lightsaber isn't in one piece anymore, but yeah, that is a Jedi. That is awesome. <laughs> it is Planet of the Apes style. Ugh, I don't know about that. What What's Planet of the Apes about it? Just the, the whole... You like think that image. someone knocked it over? Yeah. Uh, okay, see, that's, that's not the, uh, the impression I'm getting from this. The impression I'm getting from this is that this was something that was carved into the rock. Like, for this purpose. Something that you'd see from space. Nope. I believe, and I could be wrong, I believe it was toppled by the Empire and left to waste. And that's why the lightsaber's broken. Could be. Could be. And then the whole thing is, is that uh, as it, what you see in the shot as well, though, at the, about the 42nd mark, is you actually see the U-Wing flying over it right now and that's that's a really really cool look i completely missed that i thought it was i thought it was some goofy looking rock formation i did not see the jedi there at all <laughs> now what's interesting is the next segue is actually to yavin so it is possible unlikely but possible that that was just on yavin I know Yavin's a green planet, but, you know, maybe they actually play with the idea of having a little bit more than one, uh... Having a very dark ecology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, the only reason why I don't think that that's also Yavin, and I think that's Jeddah, is because even if Yavin had a very dark ecology, there is no reason you would not just fly directly to the jungle base from orbit. This is true. I think it's whatever planet she's being freed from, and she's looking out through the Ewing transport as it's flying away. Okay, so I've got a, a, another question for you, and this happens at about the 53-second mark. What planet do you think that is? Standby. It reminds me a lot of uh, Coruscant 
from episode three. All right. See, I know it's not Coruscant. And, I do and, too. And there's there's a couple of reasons for that. Like one of the big things is is that this is a this is kind of like it looks like a nighttime shot. And you've seen in other trailers where they have like the X-wings flying in and out, like doing this nighttime raid. This is also where I know Baze and uh, Chira basically uh, have their whole speech about like they destroyed our home. Now we fight the Empire, and then like Baze just gunning down a bunch of people coming out. This is that same planet, but what I don't know is is this an Imperial facility on Jeddah? Because it is, it still has a lot of really rocky spires. Is this potentially like the tower thing that we see during the day on Scarif, or is this yet another planet altogether? I don't know. It really, it, I think it's definitely. I think you're right. It's the planet we see the X wings and such flying on, and Chirrut has his uh, moment. It's definitely the same planet as that. But what planet that is, I don't know. And see, I I originally thought it was going to be something completely different, but the more I look at it, the more I think this might be that tower on Scarif. And the real reason for that is because Galen Urso's there. And he's building the... Yeah, I could see that. But, at the same time, maybe this could just be a research base somewhere else. Who knows? It's the more. <laughs> hey, who knows? But, alright, with that... At the minute two mark, Jyn Erso says something that's really revealing to me about some of the stuff that I expect to happen in this film. She goes, if my father built this thing, we need to find him. And it, it, this really struck home with me for a couple of reasons. With the way that she says it, it sounds like they are aware firsthand of what the Death Star can do at that point. Especially with the look on her face, I can buy that. And at the same time, that also means that by the time that the Death Star unleashes its power for the first time, they have not yet found Galen, Ooh. which is super interesting. And this actually ties in a little bit with, uh, with another piece that you see that you've seen a couple times. It's been a couple of the promo shoots, but it also happens in this trailer at the minute 43 mark where you've got uh Diego Luna's character, uh Captain I'm blanking on it again. I don't remember his name. Uh it's so bad because he's gonna be a really integral part to the movie. Oh Captain Diego Luna. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, so Captain Diego Luna, who whoever his character's name is. If that is his character's name, I apologize to the actor for completely botching this whole segment. But you have him, you have the droid and you have uh, and you have Jin, and to me, it really looks like they have infiltrated the actual Death Star itself in that scene. That part of me thinks that maybe when it fired, that they were on board when that happened. Maybe the other thing uh, that you know I I thought was super interesting was the whole notion that you know you see. Again, like later on in the trailer at like the minute 34 section or so that, you know, if the Empire has this power, you know, what hope do we have? 
And the thing that hit me was that wasn't their, that wasn't Jin's first response, or maybe it is, but that's not the response that we get in the trailers from her. No, the response we get is we need to destroy this thing and we need to find out how to do that. Hmm. Curious. You ain't got anything more than curious, sir? I, I mean, I, I just don't know really with Jin's, are they trying to make her an inspirational figure more so than the previous trailers? Like, was it part of reshoots? But or was this just now they're showing it to us as because we're closer to the timeline and it was just was always there? Yeah, and part of me thinks that you know it might be because if you really think about it, how could someone that wasn't an inspirational figure like hold together a ragtag group of rebels to pull off something like this? It doesn't make sense in some ways. Very true. Like, if if it was one person, then yeah, you know, you could have, like, the Boba Fett thing where it's just like, no, they're just going to do it on their own and they're going to get the job done no matter what. All right, going back in time so that we continue going in this uh, in this bad boy chronologically. 116, Krennic bragging about the power of the Death Star to Darth Vader. And I've We've gotta seen say, how that works out. Exactly. And if this isn't the first time that we have seen this happen. We have seen this happen in a uh, conference room. And, and, and how uh, does that go for that person? He uh, he needs a little bit of a breathing treatment by the end of the account- encounter. Who was that? That wasn't General Tadic, right? No, oh, that, that was, was Mahdi. Admiral Mahdi. Oh, poor Admiral Mahdi. But not really. But yeah, so he, you're just talking back to Vader and... I mean, part of me feels like talking, like, part of me is amazed that Krennic survives that scene. And maybe he doesn't, who knows? Yeah, that might be the end of Krennic right there, for all we know. Um, but I think that comes later. Yeah, me too. And, but just talking back to Vader in that manner, I don't think we've seen anyone talk back to him like that, aside from Mahdi in, in episode four. And aside from Tarkin. And Tarkin was able to get away with it. Yeah. But but that's also because Tarkin has a pre-established relationship with Anakin, where that is simply how Tarkin treats him. I'm wondering. I, I, I feel like Krennic doesn't know who he's talking to there. Like, he knows, but he doesn't know. Yeah, I'm, I think that that's a very true statement, where Darth Vader to him is just a story. He's not someone willing or he's not someone that they that they know about enough to actually fear krennic in my mind krennic is like built himself around science and provable things and he has never seen vader be vader well you know who's who else was also like that um sienna ray no not Mm -hmm. sienna ray no No. re yes yeah, Sienna Ree from Lost Stars. If you remember her first encounter with Vader when she picked him up after the Death Star exploded, like yeah. they had heard stories, but they'd never seen someone like that. Which is also only reinforced when she sees Vader and the Emperor together, and the feeling that they gave off was one of the things that really broke her confidence in the Empire. Oh, they they didn't like they didn't feel all happy and go lucky after that. They didn't feel goddamn honorable, and that's the problem. <laughs> if if they, if they felt honorable, 
I don't think Sienna would have uh, would have broken uh, broken faith with the Empire ever. Yep, but they did, and you know she was they were evil, and you know she she knew that, but she still went along with it, which is frustrating, but not a big problem. Okay, and then moving on to one twenty three, you have what is probably my favorite shot in this trailer, and part of it's because I I went to school for diplomacy and international relations. But you see a grand conference of various kinds of rebels, including some things that we haven't seen before. Like, even in the Clone Wars, we have never seen a white-colored Mon Calamari. But we see them in this thing, and they look really cool. All of the participants in the conference around that table look awesome. And I'm really looking forward to, to actually having, like... A debate around the rebellion about what to do about the Death Star. That would be nice because uh, usually you, you, we've never seen something like that before, like a, a grand conclave of rebels debating what to do. Yeah, it's a war council. Yeah, and and getting the decision made as opposed to seeing the briefing happen because we've seen the briefing happen before. You know, at Endor, we've seen the briefing happen. At Yavin, we've seen the briefing happen on Hoth. But we've never been part of the discussion about why they've decided to do this. Yep. And that's that's gonna be super cool, I think. It's gonna be it's it's gonna be a war movie through and through. And when I say a war movie through and through, I mean like you're gonna I don't mean like a combat only movie like Black Hawk Sound. I mean like something like The Longest Day or Sands of Iwo Jima, where you see planning stages and training. Not maybe not training, but like planning debate of what to do and then execution i'm sorry those are my favorite types of war movies hey that's that is quite all right i think there's another piece here that's going to go back to something that i've been harping on you and tom about for i think probably the last five or six episodes rebels and that is the fracturing of the rebellion and the fact that the the rebels are not a monolithic entity the way that they were in legends the way that the rebels do not have a single command structure. Like, and, and that's something that I think that we, we have been thinking about from a legend standpoint for such a long time, we all took it for granted. Which was that the structure of the rebellion was that you had the rebel fleet, and then you had the various army groups. But from Battlefront to what we're seeing in Star Wars Rebels, to what I feel like we're going to see in Rogue One, that that idea and that structure is a lie. That does not exist in the new canon. And instead, it is a lot of... It is a lot more fractured, and it is a lot less... Um, and it's a lot less clean, the way that decisions are made. I really think that that's going to be the case. And, um, I mean... <laughs> That makes sense, considering such what happened at the very end when, uh, not the very end, but in the novels when um, we're reading Bloodlines and we're seeing it fracture, where it didn't really fracture in the old canon, and maybe that's because this is a group of ragtag rebels as opposed to like a monolithic group. See, I think that's exactly it. And that was one of the things that bothered you about that book, and I don't think it should bother you that much, because the rebellion that you knew is not the rebellion that is. Yep, it's just taking time for me to get used to a new rebellion. 
Yeah, and, and that's like I appreciate that. It's, there's going to be a large adjustment period for all of us. But I think what's the other piece that's going to look super cool? You know, the fact that Catalyst comes out in a month that I am pumped for. And then Rogue One two like two months from now, I I can scarcely believe it. More like my hype, my hype is is starting to significantly ramp up. All right, and as a random aside. You know my sister. My sister is not really a big Star Wars fan. She actually wasn't even sure if she was going to go and see Rogue One. Because it didn't seem like the kind of movie that would interest her normally. Because when you first look at it, it's kind of like, okay, so this is a Star Wars film, but it's not part of the main storyline. So, I mean, would I really want to go and see it? She saw this trailer and she and she sent me a text that just said, David, I am excited for this film and I'm looking forward to it. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's great. Because I think that this, the two story trailers that they have put out have been absolutely incredible. I gotta say that. I think that they have been great. And they've really sold me that I think that this is gonna be a great film. All right, jumping back to what's going on in the trailer. Because, <laughs> surprise, surprise, we're about. Three quarters of the way done, but so much of the cool shit happens like from this point in. So yep. first up, what happens is you get a, a an image of these two really metallic, clanky-looking um, cybernetic legs. Old-looking, even like old-looking. Yeah, they don't look new. No, they they look worn and beaten. And as it pans up a bit you get the impression that this is Saul Guerrera, that at some point Saul lost both of his feet, possibly both of his legs. And got shitty replacements. Yeah, and got real bad replacements. And that's something interesting because if you think about it, in a couple of years later, at you know, after the Battle of uh, Hoth, you know, when the rebellion is sort of down and out at that point. Luke gets a really nice cybernetic replacement. Like, really nice. Like, wow, this hand is better than my old hand. Yeah, as opposed to Saw, who's like... you. It looked a lot like you just took two of the, um, of the Asp-7s, which are in the one of the cuts of Star Wars Episode Four. Uh, it's the thing that, like, batted around, like, an Imperial, like, Seeker droid or something like that. But, you know, they're just, they're like industrial looking. That's what they are. They're very industrial looking. And also looks like Saw is not really able to move around very well. And that's something that's kind of interesting as well. Because, I don't know, for, from my perspective, I was expecting Saw to still be a major combatant as opposed to a commander. Because specifically of his personality in the Clone Wars. With what we see here, I feel like he's actually taking quite a step back from frontline operations. And that instead, he is really focused on probably brokering deals and organizing the resistance as opposed to actually fighting it personally. Which is a, a weird take for that character, I feel like. But we'll see in Rogue One whether or not that pans out well. Yeah, we'll see how that pans out. I, I'm not... I know is going to be good. I'm just... Not thinking about them too much. I, I just want to see it pan out. Okay. So, all right. So, we talked a little bit about Jin being an inspiration. And about the 134 point, that's really where we get it. Because, you know, someone's saying, like, what, what chance do we have? Jin responds with, 
But we have hope. That's what rebellions are founded on, isn't it? Hope. And that's kind of like, that was the most positive thing I've heard in relation to anyone's feelings on the matter of what was happening. Across any trailer, any footage, any kind of idea of the film. And I was wondering, what do you, what do you think about that idea? It's kind of what I was hoping and expecting we'd get. I was expecting we'd get a movie that had the undertones of hope, you know. And that was a very unexpected but uplifting statement. I ain't really expect Jin to be saying that, and there we are. Okay. Yeah, we will see. That was, it's just, you know how they cut things too, so it could be cut differently and make us think all different types of things. That's certainly true. In fact, I know that I know that scene is cut differently. She's talking, and you see soldiers nodding their head happily. Well, not happily, but like with a determined look in their eye. And but she's talking at the conference because <laughs> then they cut to her talking, and she's talking at the conference, not as a bunch of soldiers standing in a X in a U wing. Uh, I think for me, hearing her say those things started to make me look a little bit worried. And the reason why I started to get a little bit worried was because I get the feeling that she's going to become more and more of the Jean Dark style character, and I'm not exactly sure if I if I like that. The what type of character? Uh, sorry, uh, Joan of Arc. Ah, I mean, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that from a socio level because uh, strong female character leads. Yay. And uh, I'm okay with that because, uh, I don't know, just I don't have a problem with it. Okay. I mean, it's not like I have, it's not like I have a big problem with it, but I'm, I was really hoping that I wasn't going to, that she wasn't going to be like a carbon copy of another style of character, that she was going to be her own thing. And that's what I'm hoping we'll still get, but I'm a little bit worried that there's going to be a little bit too much Joan of Arc in her. Possibly. We will see. Um, on a non-character related note and just on a costuming note, when you see those soldiers nodding and all with that determined look on their face, I can't help but think that you're, they're on a helicopter going into Vietnam. Those helmets are just like Vietnam era helmets. Well, you know, that's, that's what they were going for with the Ewing overall between that and the door gunner. Yep. And, and it worked because I'm looking at him. I'm like, uh. Anyone that's got a hard helmet, those it looks like there's a pack of cigarettes in in a in a band. Like it looks like a Vietnam helmet. Yeah, or at I know least it's the not, Vietnam style helmets that we've seen in the movies. Yes, at least I'm not saying it's a pack of cigarettes, but the helmet looks like a Vietnam era helmet, and there's a pack package stuck in a band. It's just like okay, they really went with a real like war Vietnam war look. Yeah, they really went back to, I think Tom was talking about it the other day with specifically in relation to what The Force Awakens did not have, and that was this idea of the used future. And it very much looks looks like Rogue One is taking it back to that used future, which makes a lot of sense because that's what we had in episode four. I've got to say, I love that that style, especially in Star Wars. It it looks good. It feels good. And it just, it makes everything just pop a little bit more in a way that you don't expect it to. Because it's, 
<laughs> I'm not going to say it's believable, but it feels right. Yep, I could see that. All right. Moving on. Yeah, what moving on to something that does not exist, in my opinion. People believe it or not, it doesn't matter. Um, is actually some of the creatures that we've seen in this trailer. We finally start to get a good look at some alien species in Rogue One, which we, we really didn't get a lot of in any of the other trailers. So you get a look at Morof, who's this big, giant, white, like, wampa-adjacent monstrosity um, that is a member of the Rebellion and carries around a massive gun. Then you've got, uh, you know, you've got that Mind Flayer Illithid kind of thing. But then we've also got two tubes, who I think we talked about before because they revealed the costume at one of the Comic-Cons, I feel like. I think the San Diego Comic-Con had a two tubes costume there. And two tubes at 146, and the squad he's with just look like badasses. And that's something that I am all pumped for. I love seeing some of the crazy alien designs. You know, it's one of the things I love about Star Wars. You know, the truly, like, the fact that you can look at some of these creatures that they've got, and they feel alien. Sometimes with Star Trek, it's a little bit... I, I don't get that same feeling. Because you've got the Vulcans, you've got the Romulans, you've got the Klingons. It's just like, you really look at them and you're kind of like, you're you're basically human. You know, with uh, some, like, cosmetic changes. But some of these other aliens that you see in Star Wars, they're just like, bam. No, we are, we are alien as hell. Yeah, that's the one thing I've, I've always, I agree with you, hardcore. Star Trek always just like humanoid aliens, and Star Wars is like, oh, look, there's a giant slug. It's something interesting. It's one thing that I love about Star Wars, and I'm so glad that it looks like we're going to get more of that same that same pedigree, that same style within the uh, within Rogue One. And I'm, I'm just super pumped for that. Like, when I saw two tubes, I was just like, yes, that's what I'm looking for. That's Star Wars to me. See, I never cared. I, I like the aliens. They just never did it Did it for me. I know. Of course, you're a fascist imperial fanboy. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> All right. I got to say, though, in terms of hopefulness, Captain... Oh, Andor. Andor's his freaking name. All right. Captain Andor Diego Luna. <laughs> yeah. Cassian Andor. That's his name. Okay, so Captain Andor saying, make 10 men feel like a hundred. I don't know exactly what he's talking about in that, in that standpoint, but I don't care. That is just a beautiful line. And I, like, that to me was the point where I was just like, because before that point, which happens at about 151, I was actually starting to get kind of nervous because... This trailer seemed so much more positive than the rest of them. Yeah, I, I, it, it had the right levels of not positive. I don't know if it was positive. Well, that's the thing. Positive in comparison to all the other ones. All the other ones, to me, felt really bleak. I could see that. I, and, my... and so, like, the fact that this one, like, balanced the two 
felt really strange to me until this point. Once he said that, I was just like, okay, yeah, let's go. Let's do this. I can get behind this. Well, yeah, and he, she, he's obviously saying to get people behind you, you know, like, we're really outgunned. We need every 10 to be like 100. Yeah, not even like, so, okay, so I've got to ask. So are you thinking this is a tactical statement or do you think this is a motivational statement? It's definitely a motivational statement, but at the same time, depending on the situation, if they're on the offensive right there, a defensive right there, rather, 10 men could be like 100 men in a defensive position. See, I I think that they're going like in a more theological, or not theological, but a more philosophical sense. Oh, I'm sure they are. You make you like, you know, with hope, 10 men can can feel like 100 men. You know, because their cost is just and whatnot. And and that, to me, is like what he's getting at at the core there, as opposed to the tactical. We can make 10 men feel like 100 if we just ram this thing down their throats right here, right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's exactly what it is. And then, then comes the parts that I think made you, me, and Tom the happiest. Space battle. Space, Space battle. battle. So at 156... You see these X-Wings flying around some kind of crazy superstructure in space. Not a Death Star, probably, but it's got like spokes coming out of it. It looks like some kind of like space dock. And then at 158. It's the wheel. <laughs> that would be crazy if they brought the wheel back. I'm sure it's not the wheel, though, considering what was happening there. I'm but sure. But at 158, we see at least part of the Rebel fleet. And so, James. I did a little bit of, of counting here, just from a screenshot that happens at 158. I counted two Nebulon B frigates, four CR-90 Carillion Corvettes, seven Gallifrey transports, and I think one Mon Cal cruiser. Yeah, I would concur with that. I had a harder time pinpointing the CR-90s, but the Nebulon Bs are very prominent, as are the Gallifreys. And I think that the very edge of the frame there's a Mon Cal. Actually, I think there's three Neb Bs. I feel like there's another Neb B coming into shot when it when it's right when it cuts away from it. Uh could be. Could very well be. But regardless, oh man, it just looks good. Like it looks like we're gonna get a good old fashioned space battle at some point, and I could not be happier. I mean, it's definitely something we were missing. In episode seven. Yeah, and it's kind of like you had dogfights, but you didn't have like a space battle. Because if you think about it, like the only conflict that happened in space in ships, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was the <laughs> the Thai special operations that Finn and Poe steal versus like two ties and a bunch of and the actual capital ship that they're running from yep that was the only space combat we had oh that's just sad but i guess you know all right so in the original trilogy what when didn't we have a space battle i mean episode did empire have one no episode five really didn't have one the original trilogy the main space battle was empire was endor 
Well, okay, Endor was one major space battle, but the deaths, the original Death Star trench run and that whole battle, I'll consider that a space battle any day of the week. And that was bloody awesome. Oh, it was. It was. But, like, other than that, other than the Death Star trench run and Endor, you didn't have space battles, really. Yeah, that's that's very true. But, yeah, oh, man, that that piece it was just so good. Uh, I, I can't get over how excited I am to see space combat again. Like, it, it's goofy, but, you know, but if you think about it, that those pieces were my favorite parts of the of the uh, prequel trilogy. The vulture vultures versus the Naboo starfighters in episode one. You had the various space battles, including like the fight in the asteroid field between Obi Wan and Jango Fett. Just that was super cool. Regardless of everything that happens after, once the actual clone army gets involved, and then in episode three, you start things off really high with the Battle of Coruscant. I love the Battle of Coruscant up until they get aboard the ship. Once they got aboard the ship and and R two D two like MacGyver's to death like two battle droids, then I was kind of like, uh, this is the direction we're going in. This okay? I'll, I'll sit still for now. Yeah, uh, the space battles in the prequel trilogy were some of the best. And only best parts of the movies. Uh, so then, at about, what was it, like 204-ish? Well, at 203, I'm convinced you see a crust of a planet being destroyed by the Death Star. Okay, so do you think that's the crust of the planet, or do you think that's just the city? I think it's going to be the crust of the planet being destroyed. Um, it feels like it's being tested at a very low velocity. And I don't think the laser can just destroy a city and not enter the crust. You know what I mean? I hear you. And then, immediately following that, Vader is strolling through fog and smoke to have a chat with uh, Krennic, it looks like. And I don't think it's going to end well for Krennic there. I hope it doesn't. I, I don't think anything would make me happier than for Krennic's demise to be at Vader's hand. Krennic fails, and Vader offs him. Sounds good to me. Yeah, that that would really make me happy, honestly. And then who is that looking up? Is that Krennic looking up in the rain? No, I I, I thought that was uh that was Galen. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, no, no, that is absolutely Galen Urso. I, I've I've seen tortured Mad Mads Mickelson before. That's tortured Mads Mickelson. <laughs> Guy looming over him, part of me thinks could be Krennic. Could be one of his flunkies or something like that, though. Yep. Maybe yeah, it, that I could see that. I've got to ask you the the closing line of the entire trailer is something that Saul Guerrero is shouting, and it sounds like he's shouting to Jin, and he's shouting, "Save the rebellion, save the dream." What did you think of that? Felt very out of place and out of context. I fully agree with you. Specific, there's specifically one piece that I super agree with you on. And that is save the dream. I don't understand that. Save the rebellion. I can understand. Yeah, like they haven't set us up at all with any sort of like this is our dream. Save the rebellion. Save the dream. What the fuck are you talking about, old man? Yeah, the. I mean, like on the one hand, could the dream be the alliance to restore the republic? 
And the dream is of the Republic? Could be. Could like be. that's that's the only thing that makes sense to me. But yeah, yeah. I, I just I, I, I don't know what it meant. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't know what it meant either, and it, it struck me as as being a weird tonal thing to end with. Like, even if they had just looped Save the Rebellion twice at this point, which just like Save the Rebellion, save the rebellion. I think I would be like even more okay with that. Like I'm okay with save the rebellion, save the dream, but it seemed a little bit too much like save the cheerleader, save the world that you got from uh, heroes back in the day. Yeah. And that was that. Yeah. So that was the trailer. And the long and skinny of it is it pumped me up even more. He still feels like a war movie to me. I'm excited. 60 days can't come soon enough. So I've got a question for you, James. Are you still going to read Catalyst? Because I like you're pumped to see a war movie. Catalyst does not seem like it's going to be a book about a war, though. It looks like it's going to be a book about a family. Are you still excited for the book? I'm probably not as excited for the book, but I'm still going to read it. Okay. Just to help give you greater context for what's going on. Yeah. I, I need more Star Wars details so whatever they put out i'm pretty much going to pick up for the most part unless it's rebels or uh, clone wars related i hear you and except for thrawn i'll make the exception oh man and have have you seen any of thrawn i have not oh my god thrawn in the latest episode of rebels which was called hera's heroes thrawn to me came within like maybe three seconds of going full on i think it was uh al pacino in the untouchables on a fellow imperial officer that's very funny because like okay so this guy like you know thrawn sees through this rebel plan captures two of the rebels uh two of the titular characters captures hera and ezra pritcher with like no effort at all and then he he like stuns Ezra before Ezra can do a bloody thing. Sees through Hera's entire like deception without even blinking. Uh, reveals how much he's already studied of Hera and her family, and of Twilight culture overall. And then, and then, like as he's walking out, he took like this. I'm blanking on what it was called, but it's essentially like uh, a family quilt where, you know, uh, each generation kind of like sews an extra square onto a quilt. And the Twi'leks have this kind of like totem thing that they do something similar with. And so he takes that and walks away with it. And then this, the other Imperial whose name was Slavin uh, goes, why don't we just throw out that Twilight trash? Thrawn like just turns around, grabs him by the front of his collar, and just stares into the guy's eyes. And the guy like starts freaking out. Like you can see, like if it was a more adult show, like you could probably hear him whimper or something like that. But the guy was confident that Thrawn was about to kill him. And Thrawn looked like he was about to kill him. And then he That's backs awesome. off and just goes, oh, I'm sorry. I forgot uh that not everyone can appreciate art, uh, fine art the way I do. That's amazing. And it's just like, and then he he leaves and lets Slavin Slavin does his thing, and then uh 
he and then like the rebels escape because Thrawn allows them to escape. And then you cut o- then you cut away to like what Rebels Recon brought forth. And Rebels Recon, like Pablo Hidalgo kind of focused on the idea that, you know, Thrawn's conditions for a victory for him are so different to what the Rebels have had to deal with before. Because the Rebels, you know, getting away has always been a victory for them. Because the Imperial victory condition was always to capture or kill them permanently. Thrawn's just looking for a new piece of information. And so what's happening is the Rebels are getting away, but Thrawn's just getting more and more information about how they work. And Thrawn isn't super interested in this Rebel cell. He is interested in the Rebellion as a whole. And he is using these various Rebel groups to kind of create the noose that he's going to use to destroy them with. And it is, it is, like, I, I actually don't think I read a single Thrawn novel. Like, I only know about him from, like, the essential guides to characters, essential guides to weapons and gear, and the essential guides to, like, warfare that, that you know, were all old legend stuff. Like, that's where I learned about Thrawn. I never read any of the Timothy Zahn novels. What? Not a one. Yeah, I know. Crazy, right? I-, I can't respect you anymore. You will respect my authority. <laughs> authority? Sure. I I just I don't know what the, I, yeah I I'm, I hey I, I'm not I, usually I think speechless we know that speechless. you and I come from a very different place in terms of you know Star Wars fandom speechless but yeah so how did how did because his characterization and the way that they're going about it seems to match up very closely to what I would have expected based on what I know like you've actually read the Tim Zahn novels does this sound like Thrawn to you? It sounds like he's a bit more ruthless in the Rebels than he was in the old EU. He was very laid back. Not laid back. He was ruthless, but you never got the feeling that he was about to beat your head in. It was more like, this man is intelligent, and he could kill me while I'm still thinking about what to do. I gotcha. So, other Star Wars news not related to Rebels... Darth Vader 25 hit. The end of the Darth Vader series. That that does make me a bit sad. It was a very good series. Um, and, well, I just liked every little bit of it. Yeah, you know what? I've got to say, I did too. Because, okay, so to recap the entire series, series takes place after the first Death Star. So it takes place after episode four. But before episode five, right? Yep. And 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 to so if I were to sum it up, I would say that this is the story all about how Darth Vader had his life turned upside down after the Death Star was originally destroyed, and how he regained his favor with the Emperor after that, and why the Emperor gave him a second shot. Because that's something that you don't see a lot of. The Emperor throughout the prequels was very much a you get one strike and then you're done. That's why he had Dooku killed by Anakin. That's why, you know, he, in the Clone Wars, like, he just wrecked Savage and Maul. 
Like you get one shot with with Palpatine. After that, the Palpatine party is going to use you to become a stepping stone for somebody else. And this this entire thing was really about how Vader proved that he deserved the second shot to someone who does not give second chances. How would how would you kind of like sum the entire series plot? That was a pretty good sum sum summary. It really was Vader earning his right to be Vader and not be executed. And every step of the way, especially at the end, it's like Palpatine expected this. Palpatine wanted to was hoping that Vader would come through and earn his place in the fold. And if he doesn't, well, I've got these other abominations to the Force. And so one of the things that happened that I wasn't 100% sure about was was with what happened to uh to Tag at the end. Oh, he got choked to death. Okay, so he got choked to death. But so what was his purpose in that whole thing? Was he conspiring with Silo? No, I don't think it was that he was conspiring with Silo. I think what happened was he um he just placed his bets on Silo and Silo's men instead. Exactly. He placed his bets on Silo and Silo's men and uh was wrong. He and was more was of, He was more of a science not force type person and uh well, he got what he deserved there at the end. I think so. And then the doctor survived. I was not expecting that. Yeah, and uh, you and I had a small conversation about this where it's you know, it's it's that Star Wars physics and you need to you need to turn off your brain that's just like this is impossible. You know, humans do not survive hard vacuum, period. But we we've seen it multiple times at this point throughout a variety of media. You know, we've seen it in we've seen it in movies, we've seen it in TV shows, we've seen it in comic books, and at this point it's time to just say Fine. In the Star Wars universe, human beings can survive hard vacuum for limited periods of time, even without proper equipment. Yep. And just you just have to accept that. And if you can't accept that, then you know, then 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 you're gonna you're not gonna be able to enjoy Star Wars. Because yeah, like Vader Vader fucking spaces her, which is apparently known to be a cold long and painful death which is how she survives because vader promised her at one point that it was going to be quick and he pushed her out of an airlock now in you know for us our understanding is you get you get now an airlock you're you're basically instantly dead as you know like you freeze and then everything goes inside out because of the pressure or lack thereof in star wars instead it's just really cold and you can survive a little bit and so someone picks her up and now we're getting a dr afra standalone comic series which i am a little bit interested i gotta admit yeah i I expect to get a dr afra yeah i can't pronounce her name comic series but that's pretty interesting and i'm hoping that means we get more of the homicidal droids yeah and i mean Again, they are my least favorite homicidal droids. Although, I'll, I'll say this much. As much as I love HK-47, Chopper is quickly becoming my favorite homicidal droid. Because imagine if R2-D2 
was whistling a ditty as he went and planted explosives through a house. <laughs> because that's what <laughs> Chopper did in the last episode of Rebels. <laughs> it was great. And the joy that you could tell that Chopper had when he found explosives was 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 like the childlike glee that that you see from time to time. And that 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 piece was awesome. So like I I you know the two droids that they have, I feel like they're almost too one note. Like it it's comical how how randomly evil they are. Ah, uh, random evil. Yeah, and to the point where it's just like it's it's unbelievable. And that's that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm not a huge fan of those two murder bots. Other murder bots I'm okay with that one, those two. Uh they just didn't do anything for me. I just liked the whole hey, look, it's basically R2D2 and C3PO, but homicidal. I think that's why I didn't like about them. The fact that they were like carbon copies of those two. But hey, that's neither here nor there. Yep. So then I think that's pretty much everything that happened. Uh, the only other thing was uh, in Han Solo 4 came out as well. And we are treated to treated to a number of different things that were kind of cool. Did, did you read Han Solo 4? I did. All right. So one thing that I loved was the fact that there was a falling rebel agent. That, that kind of pumped me up. Because the falling are canon because of the Black Sun in the Clone Wars series. But Zizzer doesn't exist anymore. There's some question as to whether or not all Falleen are somehow connected to the Black Sun, either through family or directly by working for them. But just seeing that, you know, hey, there was a Falleen who was uh, working through things was pretty funny. And I've got to also say, the code word that he, that they used in order to confirm that they were rebels was pretty hilarious. Do you remember what that was? I can't off the top of my head. It was uh, like, hey, who sent you? And and the one of the characters went, your worshipfulness sent us to you. That's right. And that was just like, okay, that's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and then the real question is, uh, so Han Solo 4 ends in a pretty impressive fashion where he is, he makes the jump for hyperspace after wondering whether or not he should continue with the race or not. And then he jumps and the final leg of the race appears to be blockaded by the Imperial Navy. And so there's, I think that at this point, there's only six contestants left, but all six of the contestants left in this race are all basically saying, Hey, we don't stop this race for nobody. And I think that they're all going to try to run the blockade together. And that's going to be pretty fucking awesome. We'll see how that ends for them. Probably not well, but we'll see. All right. So is there anything else uh, in the world of Star Wars that you want to talk about, James? I do not believe so. All right. Well, in that case, I think this is a good point to close out the episode. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Um, you know, if you'd give us a like on Facebook or on Twitter, we are Coruscant Pulse. We would really appreciate it. Thanks, and we hope that you're as excited for Rogue One as we are.